Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning in to Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price here, where I'm coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we're celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies of business. Oh, it's the second Monday of the month, and that's when we hear from Stuart Rogers from VentureBeat on marketing technologies. The breakthrough tip at the top of the show is a short tip where you can take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Greg Satwell, the author of Mapping Innovation, a playbook for navigating a disruptive age. Our featured interview is a 30- to 40-minute conversation is a nice deep dive into the topic of the day, allowing you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. And sometimes on the second Monday, we host a startup spotlight during breakthrough, our Breakthrough Bite. So if you know a startup company that's doing something remarkable, make sure you let us know. You know, the Breakthrough Bite is attended 50 a 10 to 12 minute segment that's not as long as our deep dive interview and not as short as our breakthrough tip to meet all the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio. And if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Because here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. That's why you only need to write down one URL a day. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. And every week, you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation for each and every episode. That means that anything we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Stuart, Greg, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question. Engage us in conversation. And, of course, when it makes sense for your business, us. So it's time for us to flip on over into our Breakthrough Bite segment with Stuart Rogers. Understand there were some really phenomenal things that happened at the VV Summit, and it has everything to do with AI that's being done right now, not just hope to be. Tell us the scoop, dude. Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here as usual. Thank you, Michelle. Um, you know, VB Summit was amazing. We, we held a, a two-day event in Berkeley, California, and it was really quite remarkable because we, we put together a uh, stage that had the likes of um, Google and Walmart and Cisco and, you know, all of these big companies, all these executive speakers um, that were telling us what they've been doing and what they've been up to and why artificial intelligence has helped. Um, we also had some really great spotlights. We had some innovation spotlights, and I, I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, those as we go through today. Um, but, you know, it was really quite remarkable because a lot of people think that artificial intelligence is a future thing. It's a science fiction thing. It's coming in the future. It isn't quite here yet, but that's just not the truth. Um, Walmart, for example, are using artificial intelligence. And the reason that they're using artificial intelligence is because it has allowed them to go to uh, from 700,000 items to over 60 million items online 
you know, that is incredible. Um, so Jeremy King, who's the CTO at Walmart, said that, you know, he went from 700,000 items when he joined Walmart in 2011. Um, that doesn't include Jet.com, by the way, which uh, Walmart acquired last year. And uh, they've gone all the way up to 60 million items. And it's only because of artificial intelligence uh, that they've been able to do all of the machine learning, the algorithms and everything else that would allow them to have an e-commerce platform that can handle that kind of, of volume. Um, of course, AI, we see it all the time in things like recommended products. When we are looking at one product or buying one product, we see recommendations. And we're seeing those use more and more data over time to become better and better and better. Um, you know, just for people that are, that are listening, you know, I have a pretty simple definition of the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence in that machine learning is where we uh, basically mine through lots and lots and lots of data and we find a pattern. And then we can apply that pattern to future data to see if we can predict what's going to happen next. Whereas artificial intelligence is that the pattern will improve itself over time in order to become the best possible pattern. And so, for example, Indeed... Um, I did a, a piece on stage with uh, Indeed, and uh, that was really fascinating. Um, Indeed are a massive, massive job site, of course, uh, much bigger than anybody else. And uh, one of their VPs, uh, Raj Mukherjee, uh, basically said that artificial intelligence is actually across every single part of their business at this point. In fact, uh, the next thing that's going to happen with Indeed is they're not going to just use AI to match the best jobs with the best candidates and make sure that personalization is as good as it possibly can be. They're not just going to use natural language processing like they do right now to actually color code the parts of a resume or a job description that are most important so that you can really get to the crux of a person or the crux of a job and see if there's a match very, very quickly. But they're even going to turn artificial intelligence um, onto the design of their site very soon. So they're actually going to use AI to redesign their site based on thousands and thousands of split tests um, that are being done automatically until the AI finds the best possible version of that website and uh, the highest converting version of that website. You know, these are the sorts of things that artificial intelligence is, is doing right now. And uh, Posado launched a brand new product at, uh, at VP Summit. The Posado product is, is tapping into AI to personalize marketing messages and I saw it working. Um, it created about a thousand Facebook uh, advertisements with different graphics and uh, different messaging. Um, and then it will go and run those and test those to different segments of the audience until, until it finds out which one is, is best. Um, and according to uh, Asaf Bakwi, um, on average, brands using Posado have seen a 49.5% increase in their conversions. Uh, using that uh, particular uh, solution. You know, it is literally right here, right now. It's not something that is in the future. There are lots of tools that you can use. Um, and Pluro was, was really interesting, I thought, um, in that uh, it also has marketing software, um, some really cool marketing software. Uh, and um, it's more of a sort of a, a B2B play. It uh, ingests data from your, your CRM systems and from other sources. And... Uh, Basically, you know, Amplero is, is fueling a B2B revolution as well in, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, um, helping to basically fuel one-to-one -one customer interactions. Uh, you know, everyone thinks of artificial intelligence in terms of B2C because, of course, it scales really quickly. But 
B2B, it's really, really helping as well. And we saw lots of solutions in the B2B space because it's helping to augment salespeople and give them everything they need in order to be able to do their jobs better and faster and more effectively. You know, it's, it was amazing to me. It was two days of, of intense case studies, takeaways, knowledge, understanding. Um, it was really fascinating. And every single part of marketing and sales and business is now being covered by AI right now. The future is insane, Michelle, and uh, we're, uh, we're already in the future as far as I can see. Well, the exciting part for me is going to be when all of that great technology is actually affordable for small businesses and entrepreneurs. But it is kind of cool to see what they're doing now versus what they're hoping will happen. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's be clear, a lot of the tools that were shown in the innovation showcases are available for smaller businesses right now. Um, I'll put as, as many of them in the show notes as I can so that everyone can go check them out. And that's exactly where you can find things. Stuart has given us some great links to check out here in the show notes today. You know, in our last episode, we talked with Jeff Lisiewicz about tapping into your creativity. Now, a big company that's been great in tapping into the creativity of their teams inside their company is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you connect and serve your customers? Today's consumer has changed the game of buying for business no matter what industry you sit. It's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. And this is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached and ask for help to grow your business or your revenues. Growth Hacking CMO are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing clients how to structure their execution with precision. You know, defining what's important to your customers today and using analytics to see how customers are making their buying decisions is the savvy way to prepare for their future needs and to stay relevant. When you know what's valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcomed. Whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches. It's your sweet spot in business and one that can help you generate profits and gain traction over your competitors. So connect and discover how growthhackingcmo.com can help you do that for this last quarter in 2017. But before we start our featured interview, remember we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Let me share a little bit about our guest next, our next guest. <laughs> Boy, my mouth isn't just having fun with me today. <laughs> you know, Greg Saddle is a popular author, speaker, and innovation advisor whose work has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fast Company, Inc., and other A-list publications over the last 20 years. He's also managed to... He's also managed market-leading businesses and overseen the development of dozens of path-breaking products. Greg helps organizations to grow through bringing ideas into practice. He applies a rigorous framework to identify the right strategies for the right problem, helps build an innovative playbook to tackle the challenges of the future and to drive transformative change. So you guys, please join me as we welcome Greg to Breakthrough Radio today. How are you doing today, Greg? Very well. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, thanks for having me here. And I'm going to ask oh, live on air since I had to take a big guess and there's a 50% chance I was wrong. 
How do I pronounce your last name? Satel, as in so tell me about Satel. innovation. <laughs> All right. So, so tell me. You know, you mentioned late in your book that innovation is messy and hard. So share with us what does innovation look like to make it happen? And then maybe our conversation can start on a clear and transparent place where we know all about it, what it really looks like, and can, you know, come in our conversation today from clarity versus disillusion. Well, the, the thing is, is a new discovery always arrives out of context, uh, meaning if it's something that's truly going to change the world, the world doesn't really know what it's looking at. That's why the next big thing always starts out looking like nothing at all. You know, one of the most famous stories about innovation is the story about how Alexander Fleming uh, discovered penicillin. Uh, And it happened, he just walked into his lab one day after a summer vacation and noticed that this strange mold had contaminated his Petri dishes and were eradicating the bacteria he'd been growing. And being very observant, he realized that maybe he should be studying the mold, and that's how he discovered penicillin. And that's how the story is usually told. And the events are accurate, but it misses a very big detail. And that is that when Fleming discovered penicillin, nobody really noticed uh, anything special about it. It was just another one of thousands of papers that were published in science scientific journals that year. And the reason why nobody noticed it is because it couldn't cure anybody. Um, it was just a this mold secretion that could kill bacteria in a Petri dish. You couldn't inject anybody with it. You couldn't, uh, it wasn't stable enough. You couldn't store it. Uh, you, and you couldn't make enough of it to be therapeutically effective. So it wasn't until 10 years later that a completely different group Uh, rediscovered his paper and started the hard work of engineering it into a cure. And then even then, a lot of doctors didn't want to use it because they already had ways of of treating infections. They didn't work very well, but they didn't know what this penicillin thing was. So it, it ended up taking about 20 years to go from that initial eureka moment to uh, penicillin as a commercially available miracle drug. And if you look at every innovation, that's not the exception. That's, that's the rule. We start off with this discovery that nobody really knows what to do with. Then later on, people figure out how to engineer it into a product. And then later on, people uh, figure out complementary in- innovations that uh, allow that initial discovery to finally start making an impact. So when I listen to that story, what I hear is we probably have a lot of opportunities already sitting around us that we can use to innovate uh, and to solve problems that we're dealing with right now. We've just got to learn how to recognize what it looks like at the beginning stage versus what it looks like at the finish stage, correct? Well, I don't think that's a realistic expectation, to be honest. Um, You know, I I, I think the first point you make is very, very true. I like to say that 
it takes about 30 years to go from an initial discovery to a um, to a transformative change, which which means that the next big thing usually is about 29 years old, and we just sort of hit on it now. If you look at personal computers, um, when uh, you know they date back to 68 with Douglas Engelbart's big mother of all demos uh, demonstration that he he did um, for scientists. And then, of course, at Xerox, they engineered that into a product. But when they, when they showed it to executives they, in, at the big uh, Xerox Global Conference in 1977, they didn't really know what they were looking at because what would you do with a personal computer in 1977? You couldn't, um, didn't have much memory. It was just really a glorified word processor. And then even in 1984, when, um, when uh, uh, Steve Jobs came out with the Macintosh, it still wasn't very useful, which is why the productivity hit didn't come until the late 90s. Um, I don't know how you would recognize that. Steve Jobs himself didn't really understand what it would be used for, which is why his next computer company that he, he, he founded after he left Apple was mostly a failure. So I don't think you can expect to, to, to recognize what a genius like Steve Jobs couldn't. But what you can do is you can look around for problems to solve. And by focusing on what problems you can solve, uh, that's what can transform all of this amazing technological advancement that's so confusing to, uh, from a, a source of disruption to a source of possibility and opportunity. And in my book, that's really the one thing I found that every single innovator I looked at, uh, that's what they did differently. They weren't looking for some great idea. They all had a particular problem in mind that they needed to solve. You know, it, it brings to mind something that I notice in the startup community. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, I just got through judging uh, an inventathon yesterday, which is kind of a combination hackathon invent uh, kind of experience where some junior high and high school students were. Uh, being challenged to solve problems in the health arena, and you know, with with younger kids, we get it. They're they're going to look to do something uh, sometimes similar to what they already see in the space. But when you start talking about entrepreneurs and adults, one of the observations I've made is that there seems to be a lot of entrepreneurs adopting what I call a me too mentality. Um, when does it not make sense for companies to take on or adopt um, what other successful innovators are already doing? You know, because you're talking about focusing on solving problems, and that's what a lot of these events do. They put people in a room and they throw a problem at them and they ask them to come up with what do you think is is a great solution for that? Yet the brain tends to think about, well, what's something similar I've already seen happen instead of 
taking more of a moonshot approach? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what's really artificial about those hackathons um, is that if you look at any really, truly uh, world-changing breakthrough, what you find is what happens is, is they, uh, it, what, how it's usually solved is with some random piece of information that almost seems to come out of nowhere from some completely different domain. Uh, and the way you come across that is through networking. And one of the things I noticed in the research to my book was that all these great innovators, a lot of them world-class scientists or incredibly successful entrepreneurs, they were all incredibly nice. And it really <laughs> took me aback for, for a little bit because – you know, you expect great innovators to be, have these mercurial Steve Jobs-like personalities, and um, and and that's how a lot of people see it. If you want to get one of the questions I get asked all the time is, how can we find more innovative people? And I know what they have in mind. They have this, uh, you know, this guy spouting all his ideas with a lot of passion. But what really, what, what true innovators look like tend to be um, these, you know, people who, net, who work well with others. They're team players. Uh, and that's how they tend to be very generous. And it's through that generosity of helping other people with their problems that they make these connections that enable them to come across that, that sort of random piece of insight that can apply to their problem. Ooh. You know, I, I can totally see that because one of the things that I think I get a lot of joy out of having our own local startup growing chapter here in Houston is the fact that we've pushed our group to be industry agnostic instead of just focusing on tech. And so by having all of those different types of people in the room together getting to know one another before we have our fireside chat, a lot of times what will happen is people will be talking about what their challenges or their problems are, and then someone from a totally different, you know, industry will go, well, have you thought about, <laughs> and it's like those eureka moments that happen that just, you, you just go, yes. Yeah, Um you know that sort of myth of the eureka moment. It, it's it's one of those pervasive things uh, that I mean. One of the most uh, interesting people I talked to was a guy named Jim Allison, who developed cancer immunotherapy, and his he, he, he described his eureka moment in a very funny way. He's been uh, he's been researching uh, in. Uh, immune regulation for decades. And uh, after a while, he said just the research kind of, it started to sort of build up. And he said it, it just slowly dawned on him could be manipulated to help fight cancer. But it wasn't, um, it, in his view, it was something that, you know, just, just sort of, uh, you know, it it just sort of kind of emerged after a while uh, of thinking about it. And 
he was sort of he sort of felt a little bit silly that it took him so long to notice it. And even today, and, and Jim is on probably the shortest of short lists to, to win the Nobel Prize, he's still trying, he's still working on cancer immunotherapy because even after it became a breakthrough drug uh, and had passed through FDA approval and everything else, it still only worked in about 30% of the cases. And they had to figure out how they combine it with other therapies to get those success rates up. And even now, um, almost two decades after he did his first experiments that led to cancer immunotherapy, he's still working on it. The only difference is thousands of other people are, are working on it too. So again, what we, you know, what we think of as that sort of lone genius and that single eureka moment usually ends up taking, you know, decades and hundreds of people and, uh, and sometimes thousands of people to, to, to really make a, a transformation happen. And I think what, what we lose is the fact that all of those people play important roles. It, it's not just that one initial person who ends up getting their name on the paper. I mean, if you think about an iPhone, um, if you think about an iPhone, you think about Steve Jobs. That's the story of the iPhone. But if you look closer into an iPhone, you see that there's lots of stories in an iPhone. An iPhone wouldn't be what it was, what it, what it is uh, without the Internet, without lithium-ion batteries, without... Um, uh, uh, without uh, chips that are power enough to run it. And all of those breakthroughs have their own stories. People like Paul Baran, uh, Alan Turing, Robert Noyce. I mean, more stories than you could tell in a lifetime you could see in a single iPhone. And I think one of the shame, uh, I think it's a real shame because I think it, it, uh, our, our, our sort of, adulation for the the lone genius makes us blind to the contribu- the types of contributions that we can all make. Mm. Really good point. You know, one of the things I appreciated in what you've written is your reminder to take joy in the boulder pushing. You know, it's a mindset not many people think about being beneficial. And we hear a lot of people talk about collaboration and culture today, yet many have never really experienced it. They're still in a very competitive kind of environment. Can we truly create a mindset that we've not experienced before? What have you seen happen inside of companies that allow them to make such a significant shift? Again, I think it's, it's really the focus on problems, on solving problems. And I think to do really big things, you need to also focus on um, solving fundamental problems. In, and, and you see some companies, uh, IBM is probably the best example of this. They're constantly taking on what they call grand challenges. And these are uh, efforts to solve a very, very fundamental problem that will change the field. But it's not something that, you know, is going to happen in a five-year time span. So they 
uh, from these long, sustainable efforts, taking decades sometimes. Um, but they're not bet-the-company type of efforts. They're, uh, they're long. If you look at Watson, for, for example, I mean, that started back in 2005. Uh, and if Watson wasn't a success, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have killed IBM. But its success has become an engine of growth for IBM today, and it's been a real, real game changer. Nobody had dreamed you could do that kind of work uh, that artificial intelligence could could work on that level with the Jeopardy Grand Challenge. You know, one of my one of my heroes is uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, and. One of my favorite quotes from him is, is he says that, you know, most of the time he feels like some sort of confused ape trying to put two sticks together. And he said, that, you know, this feeling of confusion, you know, really bothers him and it's very unpleasant. But, you know, eventually he figures out how to make the two sticks together, how to make the two sticks go together. And that's how you move things forward. So, I really do think that a big part of innovation is having, uh, and, and certainly among the, the innovators I studied and talked to, is they had a certain tolerance for that confusion, and they were able to take joy in figuring, figuring things out. You know, Greg, you do something that the whole team here at Breakthrough Radio uh, really loves, and that is focusing on asking the right questions. What can listeners do to uncover if they're asking the right questions, since that's something most don't realize that they're missing when they're in the moment in the first place? Well, I think you have to ask why. Um, you know, I was recently uh, speaking to a group of, and one of the big problems that they keep running into is food insecurity. Uh, many, uh, some ridiculous number, I think it's 40% or something like that, of, of, of community college students are food insecure. And you can imagine how difficult that makes, uh, that makes it to get ahead. I mean, these are people who are obviously motivated to better themselves, but at the same time, they're actually food insecure. In America today, what's supposed to be the most prosperous country in the world. Uh, so how do you solve just a, an absolutely dizzying problem like that? And uh, another innovator I studied is a woman who, uh, who runs something called 100K and 10, which is a network to train 100,000 uh, STEM teachers in 10 years. And what she says is, you have to keep asking why, you know. Uh, why, are they, why are they food insecure? Well, they're food insecure because they're economically insecure. Why are they economically insecure? Well, they're economically insecure because they don't have jobs or they don't have grants. Or they, well, why, you know, why don't they have jobs or why don't they have grants or why can't they study and hold down a decent job? And all of a sudden you start realizing that that one huge seemingly unsolvable problem is actually a network of smaller problems that can be attacked in a very different way. And taking this, 
taking this approach of constantly asking why to get from a, a big unsolvable problem to a set of smaller, more tractable problems that you can actually start to get a handle on. I think that's really the key. Okay. So what can we better prepare ourselves to recognize the the wide chasm that separates an initial discovery and a viable product idea? Uh, A lot of it is just about exploration. You have to get out and connect. Um, Another one of the, you know, great things that, that people talk about is how uh, or they think about is why did, uh, you know, why did Steve Jobs and Apple launch the Macintosh and not, not Xerox, which had all of the technology? And when you look into it and you go back to the contemporary stories, what you find is, is Xerox was very poorly placed uh, to launch a, a personal computer as a consumer product. They were really an, a, a business-to-business company, and what they were trying to do is automate offices. And the personal computer was not the right technology at the time to do that. But in the process of building that office of the future, they, uh, they also developed the laser printer. And the laser printer paid for all of the work uh, done at Xerox Park many, many, many times over. And they solved a really, really important problem. So I I think that we have to get out of this mindset that we need to solve every problem or we need to hit every trend. If you can solve one important problem, that's a really great business. I mean, a laser printer was, um, you know, turned into a multi-billion dollar business for Xerox and really saved the company because copiers – the copier market had already begun to be disrupted. And if they hadn't invested in Xerox Park, uh, the company probably wouldn't, wouldn't still be around today. Uh, so I think that, that uh, activity and that quest to really explore and probe new spaces and make new connections, I think that's, that's the spirit that most companies are missing today. Mm. You know, speaking of a quest, I remember when our startup entrepreneurs here, you know, every so often we'll ask them, what are some of the challenges that you're facing now so we have a better idea of of who to be seeking out to be putting in the chair at our first chat here for Startup Grind Locally. And, And one of the things that came up a couple of years ago was uh, by multiple people. It was just kind of really weird because they weren't all in the same place. So, like, I want a better understanding of how to actually find, you know, if I'm the the founder that's not the tech talent, how do I find a CTO? How do I find a tech talent? And then we had tech people saying, I want to know, you know, if, if I'm the tech founder, how do I go about finding that that business founder that is the CEO? And a really eye-opening thing of the pair that we put in the chair that night, the CTO said, uh, he's, he's like, you know, <clears throat> you've got to look for technical talent that wants to solve your problem. He, he, he said, I'm really clear that uh, I have a different kind of passion 
for what I want to solve. And when you can find people that like solving the kind of problem that you're looking to solve, it's going to be a lot easier finding the talent that wants to do that with you and help you create a really innovative solution. What when when you stop and think about what you've created inside of, of uh, mapping innovation, is that something that's just unique to the startup community? Being able to find the right talent to to produce that solution, or does that same thing happen inside of already established or enterprise companies as well? Yeah, I think that's you know that's the biggest challenge. Um, because uh, your, your guest was, was absolutely right. And one of the things I, I talk about in, uh, in the workshops and in my advisory engagements is that it's really important to hire for mission. Not too many jobs, uh, you know, really require extreme intelligence. Most people that you hire can be trained to do a job and, six months and can probably master it in two years. You don't need um, somebody with 10 years experience to do most of the jobs that are out there. Maybe astronaut, brain surgeon are the exceptions. So it's really important to A, go out and find the people that have a passion for your mission. But even more importantly than that, it's important to have the mission in the first place and to really be a mission-directed enterprise. I mean, the mission statement has become a cliche about this statement in the boardroom that nobody actually notices. But when you see the successful companies, companies that are able to be successful decade after decade, they all have a, a strong, strong sense of mission. And that's always been true. I think what's different today, uh, besides the, the the holding the mission, what's different today is the speed at which things happen. So it's what I find that, that the larger organizations, what they're really having trouble with is building horizontal connections across the enterprise at an operational cadence so that little piece of insight you need to solve a problem that might uh, very well exist within the enterprise in some other department or some other geographical division. How do you, how do you constantly, uh, how do you constantly keep building those uh, connections and uh, cascading that link density to get the information to go where it needs to go? And there are some emerging things. Uh, Yammer uh, is is one tool, but some uh, uh, some organizations are building liaisons to uh, to uh, decrease their social space, or using various uh, teleconferencing technologies to really get the issues out in front of the entire enterprise so that those uh, informal build on, on each other as people are trying to solve all the thousands of problems that come up in a modern-day enterprise. Well, 
You know, before I ask our our last question that uh, I've only forgotten to ask, we asked the same question of all our guests who come on the show, and I've only forgotten to ask it two times, and Lou in New York never let me forget it, so obviously I've never forgotten it again. One of the things I've learned from talking with really uh, brilliant minds like yourself is, who's taken the time to, to create a body of work, to, to, to write a book, is that they've shared with me there's always something in the process of writing their book that was like an unexpected lesson that happened for them. What was the unexpected lesson that happened for you when you were writing Mapping Innovation? That's a fantastic question. For me, it was really uh, the, the point I made before about how nice and collaborative these uh, these incredible people I talked to were. I expected I, a lot of them. I was I was fairly intimidated talking to, but when when I did uh, finally have the conversation, they were as interested in me as I was in them. Uh, and when I sent them things to fact check uh, in almost they asked for less credit to be given to them and more credit to other uh, to people they worked with and I, I think that's sort of you know that's really something that nobody talks about if you really want to be an effective innovator uh, be the type of person that other people really want to work with and if you can do that you'll always be that much more likely to come across that random piece of insight that'll help you solve a problem you need to solve. Mm, great piece of advice. So there's a question we do ask all our guests. It's ended up being named the brain download question. And where it originated, Greg, was on Saturday I was watching Star Trek and Fox was doing his thing where he was doing the whole mind meld where, you know, he puts his hands on people's heads and he literally can kind of morph into their mind and see the beginning all the way to the end. I was being a little snarky that day. Not that anybody listening has ever yelled back at their TV, but I yelled back at the TV and I said, I don't care about everything that happened from the beginning to the end of his life, but if you can explain to me why he made that choice and that decision, and as soon as it was out my mouth, I was like, wait a minute. That would actually be very useful. What if we could just get a slice of a mind meld, just just a brain download of why someone's made their choices and their decisions? I'm like, how cool would that be? And then my mind started going, well, who would I want to brain download from? I was like, well, I could have someone from history or the past, or I could learn from someone in the present, or I could be really bold and try to learn from someone in the future. So if you could do that, Greg, if you could get a brain download from anyone, whether it's past, present, or future, who would you want to have one from and why? To be honest, I'd just like to know what my wife is thinking half the time. (laughs) 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 Because I talk to brilliant people all the time, and I seem to be able to – I, I I seem to be able to get them to explain themselves to me, but my wife often remains a mystery. <laughs> well, that was a unique answer. We don't usually hear that one on Breakthrough Radio. Thank you for, for playing along with it. Is there anything 
else that you'd like to share with listeners before we uh, go to sign off today? No, I would just say that, you know, if if you, you know, just reiterate what I said in the beginning, that um, it seems simple, it's not simplistic, but if you want to make a, uh, a real impact, you don't need to have some incredibly fantastic idea. What you really need to do is find a meaningful problem. And often that's not going to be the problem that you started working on. But when you come across a problem that's worth solving, if you stick with it, um, generally you can you can make something happen. Sounds like solid advice. Thank you for coming on Breakthrough Radio today, allowing us to just kind of ask you a plethora of some pretty deep dive questions here. You know, it's funny how listeners have shared with us that they not only learn something that a lot of times piqued their interest in wanting to go out and read our guest book, but they've gone back and listened to the interview after they've read the book, and they said they got a whole new set of lessons. So I hope everybody puts that into action. Great. Thanks for having me, Michelle. You bet, Greg. Bye-bye. Well, my question to you guys is what are you going to do differently this week? What are you going to do differently from what you've just learned from Greg about mapping innovation? Uh, are you going to figure out how to make yourself more uh, uh, easy or more fun to work with? That, that definitely was some great advice. And the other thing is I want to ask you, what are you going to put into action as far as reviewing some of the solutions that Stuart shared earlier? Pick one. Don't try to do all of them. You know, look at them, review them, and then pick one. Put it, put it to work. Find how it's working for you. And if you have additional questions, let us know, and we will give that feedback to Stuart, and he can answer them live here on the show. Now, because your feedback is important to the entire team, because our intention is to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business, to accomplish that, it helps us all to hear what you liked what you didn't like, which topics you're enjoying, which ones you want to learn more about, who you want us to bring back that you really liked a lot, who you want us to bring on we haven't had on yet. And we get it. Not everybody wants to tell us that in the public social spaces with the hashtag BBS Radio. Some of you would rather just do it in private in an email, and you can do that at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. Again, that's thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. We want to thank you for visiting and checking out additional episodes on Breakthrough Radio at www.thebreakthroughradio.com. So, you know, remember, a brain download question is fun and important because the intention is to remind you to ask yourself, how am I making my choices and my decisions? And speaking of choices, have you visited and participated in a startup grind fireside chat yet? I want to encourage you to reach out and find out what's happening in your city or country with Startup Grind because you're going to find a group of enthusiastic entrepreneurs and investors who are really looking to create profitable businesses and affect positive change for the world. If you happen to be in Houston on Wednesday, December 13th, we're going to take a dive into what is Pitch a Kid and how can we gain clarity for our pitches from kids as well as find out what is Mass Challenges new managing director of Texas, Mike Miller, going to be up to? How is he going to be doing things to improve our startup ecosystems results? So 
what's happening in your city with the growing, make sure you go find out. Well, this is Michelle Price here with Breakthrough Radio, delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. I'm coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with you in business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We will talk with you next Monday. 